Welcome to Freelance Feels, a podcast all about self-employed life. This is where we chat about different people's businesses, their journey, their highs and lows. This episode, I speak to trauma specialist Lucinda Gordon-Lennox, who tells her personal story, as well as offering sound advice for those who might be struggling with their freelance and their mental health. Trigger warning for this episode, we do talk about trauma and addiction. If you'd like to find out more about Freelance Feels, you can head to at freelance underscore feels on Instagram or freelancefeels.com for everything else. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Freelance Feels podcast. Today, my guest is Lucinda Gordon-Lennox. Welcome, Lucinda. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Would you like to tell everybody what your work is, what you do? Um, tell us all what you're... And do you describe yourself as freelance or self-employed? first of all as well oh good question yes I am I am freelance I am self-employed absolutely um I'm a trauma therapist um and I kind of want to change the 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 wording of that at some stage because Mm. I think it can feel quite can sound quite frightening because sometimes trauma is frightening of course Mm. but essentially what I do is I help people to heal blocks that are in their system which are disenabling them from living their best lives mm-hmm. in the nutshell that's that's what I do and I use a beautiful technique called attachment focused EMDR which is really effective um, and that's what I do brilliant can you tell us a little bit more about the technique for those that I don't know I actually don't know about it so would you like to tell us what it involves absolutely so it's about 25 years old, maybe a bit more now. And it was discovered by a woman called Francine Shapiro, who's a psychologist, an American psychologist. And it was really curious. She was just out walking. I think it was her lunch break or something. Um, and she was feeling a bit anxious. And as she was walking, she noticed that her anxiety was lessening, but she wasn't quite sure why. And then she paid a little bit more attention. And she noticed that as she was walking, her eyes were flickering from left to right. So she wasn't intending for that to happen, but it was just happening anyway. So she put two and two together, and and I'm I'm obviously making a a bigger story much smaller. She put two and two together and she thought, whoa, you know, is there something in this eyes moving backwards and forwards that's helping my anxiety lessen? Mm -hmm. And being a psychologist, she worked with psychologists, so she went back to work and she started to try this out on her colleagues. Mm -hmm. And she had exactly the same results. So she would ask them to think of something that made them feel anxious or sad, something difficult, more difficult to experience. And then she would invite them to move their eyes from left to right. And so they were looking, looking far to the right and looking far to the left and then just moving the eyes back. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Everyone is listening, starting to move. So back. am I. But it's really, it's, but it's good you're doing it because then you realize how uncomfortable it is mm. because it, we, it's obviously been, it, it's evolved. You know, how we use it now has evolved since then. Because if we do sit and we just move our eyes backwards and forwards, it, it get really straining on the muscles. It can feel mm. a bit sore after a while. Mm. But essentially what she realized was that people's difficult feelings were lessening. So she took it a step further and she, you know, she asked people to really think of a memory that that still has a difficult emotional charge for you mm-hmm. memory from the past and then she say, you know think of that memory and then do the eye thing from backwards and forwards and after a few sets of this the eye is going backwards and forwards what was happening is that um, by the end of it people would think of that original memory and they'd realize that the difficult feelings were no longer attached to that memory wow right 
So this was an extraordinary finding. And of course, at the time she was, you know, there were lots of people who said, oh, this is ridiculous. This is woo-woo. People still do today. I did. I, I said that when I was first introduced to it. So I totally get it. I was like, how on earth? Can something like that honestly help me with these enormous feelings? Yeah, things that you've had for years, if not your whole life. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I was like, no, no, no. This is this has got to be a, a complete con. Um, but but it works, and that's essentially what what we do with EMDR. It has evolved a lot. It's now it you, the, the possibilities are so much bigger. The techniques have have been evolved. The eye movements are very rarely used now because yeah. it does feel a bit straining also the therapists um were guiding eyes from backwards to forwards with their arm okay so you know the more popular the emdr got the more therapists were doing it mm-hmm. and the more they got repetitive strain injury oh god so, yeah. yeah so you know nowadays what 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 we understand now is that actually all we need to do in order to get that very similar movement of the eyes from back to front is to stimulate both sides of the brain one after the other so we can do that in a variety of ways um you can uh, and online um Mm. we we very often cross our arms in front of our body almost like we're giving ourselves a hug Mm. but then just gently tap alternate tapping left right left right um also working online you can there's wonderful software now that's been developed especially for emdr and you can wear headphones and you can have a bip in each ear um you can follow something on the screen left to right uh if you're working in person you can have hand buzzers Mm. soon to be on the online version as well you can tap your thighs one after the other it doesn't matter whatever is the most comfortable for you but it's bilateral stimulation we call it because it's stimulating one side of the brain um, after the other and that just helps everything to process through so what we work on a past memory which starts off feeling horrific at the start of the session and by the end of the session it will be severely reduced if not completely reduced in its intensity so that's essentially what emdr is Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. I've, I'm yeah, right? already, yeah, and so much of what you say, and, and one of the reasons I've been today is you have a book all about trauma, and we're going to talk about that as well, and, and your practice. And how, how did all of this come about for you? How did you get into the line of work that you're in? Were you always self-employed, or were you, mm-hmm. did, 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 you come to, how, did you come to practice and discover this and build your, your business? How did it all come together? No, not at all. I have had the most topsy-turvy career imaginable. I was, oh, I was about to call myself a reprobate, but <laughs> Good I, I don't know if it was reprobate or I, I was steeped in addiction. Okay. I was not in a sort of good place, I, but I was quite high functioning um, for parts of it. Mm. So when I left school, I, I, I went and I actually went and <laughs> I went and um, taught Spanish at the school that my sister was at because I wanted to spend more time with her and I really enjoyed speaking Spanish. Mm. Oh. While I was there, one, uh, very, very sadly, one of the music teachers died. And so I, st- I love music as well. Mm. So I stepped up and became an interim music teacher oh, while wow. they found somebody else. And then, yeah. and then I, I ended up doing that for two years and loved it. And then I thought, oh, I'm too young to be a teacher. Too much responsibility. I need to be sort of, you know, doing other things. Um, so then I moved to London and I started temping because uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Ended up in the city, ended up at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it there. I worked for the most incredible person there who I'm still friends with now. Amazing, amazing guy. 
had a brilliant eight years and then got offered an amazing opportunity for another bank. So I thought, oh, why not, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was in banking for 10 years, not doing the maths. I am not a maths person, <laughs> but I was quite good at organizing the maths people. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, and then I knew it wasn't, I, I mean, I knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't a calling, but I was sorting out my own stuff. You know, I really was in a very difficult place emotionally and psychologically. I didn't really realize. I just thought that I was one of those people who just had to sort of drink every day and mm. had to take drugs every day in order to, fu- in order to function. And I was high, quite high functioning. Mm. And I just thought that was my lot. I didn't realize that actually I was in an awful lot of pain because it had been my normal for so long. Yeah. But it meant that in terms of purpose and career, it, that wasn't in my remit, mm-hmm. you know, it really wasn't. But then um, I actually got sober at the age of 30, 31. And, and I think that's when I sort of realized, oh, this banking thing isn't really for me, is it? Mm. I was wondering and, if it's probably a lifestyle as well as a, a career choice where if you're not funny. drinking, for example, you're not I part of the gang I, on a Friday, etc. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wasn't that much in the banking world per se. Um, I wasn't because I wasn't a banker. So I wasn't really involved in that. But I think it was a perfect place. You know, you can be you can be no one in a bank. Mm. And I think that suited me because I had no idea who I was. Mm-hmm. So I was a sort of nondescript keeping everything together. But very, very guarded, incredibly guarded. Mm. And so nobody really noticed that I was actually, you know, dying inside. Mm. So, so when I, so having got sober, I thought, oh yeah, that, you know, this really isn't for me. And then I actually had a child quite quickly into recovery about two years in my first child. And um, I'd been in a 12 step program, which frankly saved my life because it managed to help me keep stay sober. Mm. And I just needed to be sober. There was just no two ways about it. Um, and it was after the birth of my first child that I suddenly started to experience serious feelings, mm-hmm. like emotions that I, I didn't even know were possible for a human being. And, you know, specifically what happened, I was watching that, I think my daughter was about, she was little, so she was still you know, baby, she was still being carried a lot. She was still napping a lot. So it was probably in her first year. Now I think about it, maybe her second year. And I was watching this that movie with, and I forget what it's called, Naomi Watts, and there's a tsunami. Oh. And it's, it's a, yes, I just can't remember what it's called. I'm, I'm afraid my memory, I'm 46. My memory's just not as <laughs> it was. We're in the fog. <laughs> <laughs> it's so often in the fog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was that movie, excellent movie, and she's brilliant in it. But it got to the part where she was separated from her children. Mm. And this terror came into my system. And I'd never felt, well, I didn't remember ever feeling that terror mm. before in my life. And it was extraordinary. I felt like I'd been possessed. And, and I realized that it was the movie that was, that was, you know, exacerbating this. So I turned the TV off. And you know, about an hour later, the, the feeling subsided and I just got on with my day. And then about two weeks later, I thought, I'm just going to try that movie again and see if the same thing happens. And so I turned it on and exactly the same thing happened. I felt the terror. So I had a brilliant therapist at the time and he was able to spot, I suppose, oh, maybe that's trauma mm. and sent me off to some EMDR. And I thought, so I thought, oh, this is going to be rubbish. <laughs> 
anyway, I had two weeks intensive EMDR by choice um, because I was just, but I was in such a pickle. I, I'd sort of allow, and once I knew it was me and there was something mm-hmm. I could do about it, it, it kept coming up and I was, you know, quite ready. And I walked out at the end of that two weeks and I'd already been wondering what to do with, with, with the rest of my life, you know, career change. Um, and a few people had said to me, you know, be a therapist. And I was like, uh-uh, no way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't, I don't, I, I, it's valuable work, but I don't see myself doing it. I, I, I like results. I, I still, I'm a bit of a fix it thing. I, mm-hmm. I like something tangible. And to me, being a therapist wasn't tangible enough. And I walked out of that EMDR um, two, two weeks and I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going back. I'm going to finish my, my therapy degree. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to be an EMDR therapist. Wow. Um, and, and that's how it happened. Yeah. So you start, you'd started a therapy degree as well. I had started. Yeah. Yes. So it had kind of knocked on your door and then you, you'd done, okay, then no, no, stay out there. And then it was like, hold on, I'm coming in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It said, right, I'm, I'm coming in now. <laughs> you have no that's choice. Right. That's wow, right. that's, thank you for sharing that so honestly as well because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who will that will speak to you know people who might be in a similar situation and thinking well what do I do so hopefully that has yeah. you know one of the my purposes with the podcast is for people who might be in a similar situation to to potentially see a way forward for themselves as well so thank you for yeah. your honesty there I hope so and let, let's talk about the book because the book how did the book then come about? Was the book something you always wanted to do once you started practicing or was it something that came to you as you practiced? Did people ask you for it? How did it come about that you would then write a book about trauma? So it came about because um, once I started doing uh, training in EMDR and really starting my EMDR practice, and then I came across the attachment focused style of EMDR, which is, um, it's the same mechanics as EMDR but it just it just has a depth to it that really resonated with me and and I what what was happening I was still sort of in and out of 12-step meetings as well and what happened to me as I really got into this work and I was continuing my own um, trauma healing if you like Mm. because I think as you know for me as a trauma therapist I just wanted to heal 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 because I knew that the more healing I did the bigger space I could hold for my clients mm, you know yeah. still quite codependent wanting to healing for my clients but, <laughs> but you know it's all it's all yeah. a journey isn't it but but also you know it felt really important but then of course I, of course I felt better too with the healing um and so I was really I was just immersed in it so immersed in it and what really occurred to me was that, you know, the first thing that really blew my mind was that, of course, I'd always thought that trauma was this thing that happened to a few incredibly unlucky people um, or soldiers, in, you know, going to war. I, I yeah. thought it was really confined to, to, to a pretty like extreme, small, yeah, really yeah. extreme stuff yeah. and a very small percentage of people. But what I found was that actually um, everywhere I looked, I was just spotting unresolved trauma in people. You know, I was sitting in, um, I was sitting in in 12-step fellowship meetings and just just literally seeing trauma everywhere. I was in the supermarket. I was seeing trauma everywhere. You know, I was out um, at the playground, anywhere. I was seeing trauma everywhere. I was like, oh my God. 
and you can turn the, it off once it happens. Once you started to sit, so was, you know, when what women want at the film with Mel Gibson, it's like once you start hearing, like everyone stop having trauma. I can't stop seeing it. But yeah, once you saw it, you were yeah. like, oh my I'm god, I'm laughing because yeah. that's exactly what it was like. And I was like, my god, this is an enormous thing. And I thought, God, and you know, this is not this is an enormous thing, but here's this therapeutic technique which is just so incredibly powerful. I need to get this information out there. Mm-hmm. I just need to get it out there. And so once I'd made that decision, actually putting the book together was was putting the chapters together and writing it was absolutely easy. I've never written before, never considered myself a writer, but I was so passionate about explaining to people listen, we've all got some of this, but it's okay because Mm. it's completely normal. It's unavoidable if we're human, but guess what? There's something we can do about it. And when we do something about it, we we open and we expand and we feel so much better because we don't wake up with anxiety and we don't have periods of loneliness where where we sort of get all existential and go down rabbit holes and think we're never going to get out. You know, we really can do something about this. So, you know, it was from that perspective, it was an incredibly easy book to write. Um, and, and I just, I wanted to share, I just wanted to share it. It felt so important. Yeah. That idea that it's, everybody has a level of this, that really stood out to me because, yeah, like you say, you imagine that it's something that happens in extremes. And also I think we all think things are happening to other people and we forget to think they might be happening to us. And, there's a culture now, isn't there? And I'm part of it. I'm on Instagram all the time, but it's like we see everybody else. We perceive everybody else achieving and being successful in life Mm -hmm. and work. We're not looking inwards enough in the right way. Does that make sense? Is that something that's sort of what it kind of got me thinking about is that idea that we're all so busy looking at what everyone else is doing, judging ourselves by comparison. And then, then when you add in the fact that we've, we've got the trauma added in that might then be triggered by something we see someone else doing or putting on social media or in real life. Absolutely. It's almost like a big sort of, it's a big soup, isn't it? I suppose. Is that a good way to describe it? It's a fantastic way to describe it. It's, it is, it's really soupy. It is. Mm. And, and social media can be one of the most triggering places that there is. Mm. I mean, I can see, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work on myself and I, of course I still get triggered. And one place I'm, I'm, gonna get triggered if i'm scrolling is is instagram and i do because i have an instagram account too and so i'm constantly looking through to see what would be good to share as a story for example Mm. and if i'm feeling a bit tired and a bit vulnerable and you know i oh you know get oh wow (laughs) (laughs) oh not good enough i'm like you know all that stuff can come up we call it i say hello old friends you've come back (laughs) you know our sort of our real ones um uh, yeah, incredibly triggering social media, and and you're right. We do, we do look outside, and we do, we do look we look outside ourselves for external validation very often. Mm-hmm. When you know, honestly, the only people that can honestly, truly, and authentically validate us is ourselves. Mm-hmm. But because of unresolved uh, stuff in our system which might have come from our lifetime, might have come from our parents' lifetimes, it might have come from um, down the generations, it might even come from society. You know, there's a lot of trauma that we pick up just from societal's views on things. Mm, mm. And so when you put all of that together, 
of course, as humans in this 21st century, um, you know, we're going to be more likely to look outwards than look in because that sort of solid sense of self that we would love to have really been able to nurture and develop during childhood and during our schooling and during our adolescence, very often the factors that are at play, whether it's in the family system or the education system um, or the society, are really, as you use the word judgment, there can be so much judgment, so much pressure, there's, you know, to fit a mold. And of course, we're all completely individual. So the more molds that we're trying to fit into or feel that we have to fit into, the further away we're coming from our own sense of self and ability to look inwards and trust what we're seeing inwards, we feel like we have to fit into these molds. And so, yeah, it's, as you say, it just becomes a soup. Mm. And do you find a lot of people that you're working with now, I guess the question is sort of, how is the balance of the trauma they, they might have experienced? Is there, is there more, is it growing that people it's connected to work and, and, and sort of that side of life, I guess, post-pandemic as well, where life and work went in collision together and yeah. suddenly everyone was working from home and there was no defined spaces. Does, does, is work a, a big thing in, in trauma in terms of people's careers and people's businesses? Does that feature a lot? It's really interesting. So work trauma in of itself is relatively small. Mm. But what is enormous in the workplace is being triggered okay. into, into our unhealed wounds. So most of our actual wounding is going to come from either trauma that's passed down to us or the first seven years of our life from conception. Mm. That is, it's our most critical time of brain development when all our neural pathways are forming and they form depending on our environment. They really do. So whatever's happening in our environment, um, we then take on as truth, whether it be about ourselves or the world. So somebody who's born into an absolutely beautiful, fully functioning family environment in a really amazing community. Uh, in a, yeah, I think I'll pause there because I'm not sure any society is fully functional. <laughs> but, but we, yeah, I, if, I, if, I, yeah. You know, if you at least have that, then what you're going to learn is, wow, I, I'm a good person. I am enough. And mm. the world is a beautiful place. But if we're born into a, uh, a dysfunctional family, where there are messages that perhaps we are not good enough or we're not enough or we're not lovable, they might be explicit messages. They might be said out loud, but they might just be implied. They might be implicit messages. Um, we might have a really tricky time at school. Perhaps we've had learning differences and they haven't been spotted gosh that's incredibly common um you know maybe we've had addiction in the family mental illness in the family um if if there's a level of dysfunction you know we will part of our messaging that we will learn about ourselves in the world is oh perhaps i'm not i'm not good enough or maybe the world isn't a very safe place perhaps mm. life is meant to be really difficult and that will form our neural wiring and so what happens is when we've had those adverse experiences or suboptimal experiences, I call those trauma because what happens in the brain is exactly the same, actually, as if we're in a war zone mm -hmm. um, or if we witness a terrorist attack. You know, the actual thing, whatever goes on in our brain is exactly the same. And also the healing process is exactly the same, whatever type of 
trauma we're looking at. Um, and so what happens when we go into the workplace and we enter adulthood and we're in a stressful environment, it's very often in a stressful environment mm. that our unresolved stuff comes up. Yeah. We're going to be triggered. And then a, a wound from childhood, it might be a familial wound, something from the family, something from school, it'll come shooting up the pipe. Now, because we're not, as a society, because we're not very well-versed in, I mean, really properly well-versed in what trauma really is and what triggering really is, we might be sitting at work and our boss might come and say something and we might go into utter terror. And because we don't understand trauma and triggering, we're going to think that it's about our boss mm-hmm. and it's about me in this present moment. But it's not going to be. It's going to, our boss might not be a very nice person. That mm. might be a truth. But what's actually happening in that moment is that our system is being reminded by our boss of something that happened to us a long time ago. And it's come shooting up the pipe and it's erupting in our body. I have a really good way of telling, you know, is it, is it, is it, is my reaction about what's happening and actually happening in the here and now? Is it about my boss? Or have I been triggered into something past and unhealed? And as a general rule of thumb, if we think of a, a scale of zero to 10 um, of intensity of emotions, where zero is no emotion at all, just neutral, and 10 is the most distress ever. If my response or reaction is on the five to, zero to five end of the scale, mm. then it's probably um, appropriate for the adult situation. But if it's on the five to 10 end of the scale, then we have been triggered into something, into a wound from the past. So it's very often less about the trauma at work, but about being triggered at work. And that is, that is everywhere, everywhere. It really, and and especially, I guess, thinking of self-employment, you know, people sort of say, when you go self-employed, you don't have a boss anymore and you're your own boss. And I always say, well, no, actually, often you have three or four or more at once if you have different clients. Um, you know, you've got lots of people thinking that you belong to them, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so there can all often be more than one interaction that's a potential trigger for something that's unhealed, along yeah. with all of the other things that we're trying to do, you know, generate our own income, juggle everything etc etc it's sort of almost an extra step isn't it you've not just got the one boss or the one colleague you might have lots of different ones that are coming at you from different angles with potential trigger points a hundred percent and then on top of that you know you've got the weight of the responsibility of holding your own business Mm, mm. and that you know that that's going to have trigger points in of itself too and you know a really another really classic sign of unresolved emotional experiences from the past is if we have negative beliefs about ourselves and it's really interesting you know it doesn't matter who i'm working with they might be a self-made billionaire um in you know business they might be um they might be an entrepreneur they might be someone like myself who just has a small business doesn't make any difference it might might be someone who's been to harvard business school makes no difference um 90 percent if not more will have the belief somewhere in their system i'm not good enough Mm. and i always find that breathtaking you know when i'm working with groups of people and we're just thinking about negative beliefs the one that comes through every single time is that belief i'm not good enough and most of us carry it at some level or other Mm. into whatever we're doing and so, you know, if we're holding that 
I think one of the biggest ones, I think, for, for business owners and entrepreneurs especially is, is imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, or for anyone working, that imposter syndrome is yeah. such a big one. And underneath that, that imposter syndrome thing is that belief, I'm not good enough. Mm. And that is the result of unprocessed experiences from the past. So, it, it, yes, it's everywhere. And then, as you say, you've got clients who, of course, are working for us they are our bosses aren't they yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> well, they, they can so. trigger us yeah <laughs> that makes me really i feel really sad thinking of the idea that everyone has that that feeling i guess i'd love to get your thoughts on how perhaps you you'd manage that for yourself as a small business owner but also what people mm-hmm. might be able to do if they're listening and they're thinking oh god that's really me actually i'm feeling this mm-hmm. how can we start to move forward in our in our lives with, with sort of once we know this um and i would really encourage people and we'll get the details before we say goodbye of people to to get your book and to read further into this because mm. i would say that was a good first step to understanding further if they're feeling like this is really speaking to them and they're thinking oh my god that yeah. is ah. um what, yeah. what works for you in the day-to-day and what would you perhaps advise people that they might be able to think about doing to help them with their, their feeling that moment Of course. So for me, it's been a long, long journey um, of a lot of trauma work. Um, You know, I had, I had a, a a lot, a lot, 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 lot of of early attachment stuff. Um, And, and, you know, my biggest recommendation, and I have sent so many friends down this route, so many friends have a few sessions of attachment focused EMDR. Mm -hmm. It won't take that many sessions. And it's such a it's such a beautiful process because we find the trigger point and it might be as simple as looking at my accounting software, either looking at the numbers or thinking I'm not very good at numbers or whatever it is. And just mm. whatever it is that upsets you, triggers you, frightens you, whatever it is in the business, um, in your work. And what you will do with the therapist is that would be your starting point. Mm. And it will be, okay, bring up the image. Okay, I, I don't know why I'm using accounting software, possibly because <laughs> I did my invoices this morning. But, so I'm looking it's at it. It's a good it. one though, because lots of people will be like, yup. <laughs> yep. <laughs> looking at it and just thinking, okay, how do I feel? And how do I honestly, we're going deep here. You know, we are going deep. This is deep work, but we want to go deep because it's like scraping the barrel with a spoon. Yeah. Once it's out, it's out too. So we look at that image, we get really honest. How do I feel? Or scared anxious where is it in my body a little bit in my tummy bit in my chest and then what's the belief about myself in that moment oh I'm not good enough I can't do this and then what happens with the therapist is you do this with the therapist then she will say so taking that image that that are those feelings the body sensations and the belief drop back in time as far as you can go without censoring it and you know for anyone listening don't don't do it now. You don't need mm. to do this now. Yeah, this is work Ways, to do with a therapist. Yeah. Yes, mm. do this with a therapist, but this is what will happen. And what happens is because we're being triggered in that moment, um, the moment that we were, that, that this, the moment that is being triggered from our past is already open. Mm-hmm. Because if it weren't open, we wouldn't be being triggered. So when we do that little exercise and you do it with the, with, with the therapist and if you're struggling of thinking, oh, I'll never be able to do that. That's okay. That's what the therapist helps you with. Because essentially what's happening, it's like there's an invisible pipe from the trigger down to the original trauma. And it's open because we're feeling all of those feelings. So when we do that drop back in time, we go right back 
to whatever it was, probably pre-seven years old. It might be something different, but it's generally going to be there. And we do the EMDR that we talked about at the beginning of, mm-hmm. of this show on that target. And then we, when we finish the session, at the end of the session, we go back to that original image, which is the invoices. Mm-hmm. And everything has changed. So where we'd started feeling, oh my God, I'm not good enough, anxiety, fear, whatever it was. Now, when we look at that image, we'll look at it and be like, I don't know what all the fuss was about. <laughs> it's such a shift. Mm. You know, I cannot speak more highly about this work. And as I said, I've sent so many friends. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, thank God. I kind um, of it becomes quite, uh, I don't want to say addictive because it's completely the wrong one, but for want of a better word, it can become very much that you want to go more and more and more perhaps because you're thinking actually you can see what, because I've had talking yeah. therapy and, and yeah, actually I'd really look forward to it some weeks. I'd be like, oh, thank God, I'm going to go and get it all out this week. And yes. I know that something's going to unlock and I'm going to feel better by the end of the yeah. day sort of thing. You kind of get to that point, don't you, where you want to go and explore in that way. So uh, yeah. Totally. I mean, you, you know, you, you get it. You, you totally get it. The thing that really saddens me, of course, it there's, there's still, people still feel a bit of a stigma mm. around mm. it. Like, you know, you don't go to therapy unless you've got real problems. And yeah. that, that's a sort of phrase that's out there. And I'm like, Oh no. And, and, and I say this quite often, you know, trauma therapy uh, should be as normal as going to the gym. Mm. Mm. We go to the gym for our physical body. So why wouldn't we go and do these little pieces of trauma therapy work for our emotional body and our mind yeah. Yeah. and our complete sense of uh, psychological well-being. Why would we only focus on the physical? Mm. To me, it's, it doesn't make any sense. But, no. but of course, because I've, I've done it and I've, I've reaped the rewards, but there is still that stigma and people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And mm. that's a societal trauma and that's society shaming, putting unnecessary unwarranted shame on something that that is not shameful Mm. and that really needs to change because I think that keeps a lot of people too frightened to step forward and say actually I'd really like to go and do a bit of this work but hopefully hopefully I can help you know I really want to try and dislodge that shame because it is a massive barrier yeah and And I guess there's probably an argument as well. I don't know if you agree with this, um, but see what you think. It's like there's, there's a business case for exploring these things with yourself because if there is a block with your accounting software and you're not updating or sending out your invoices, well, you're not getting paid on time if you're not sending your invoices out regularly. So there's that's your block. But even into more deep things, you know, like sort of applying for certain roles or putting yourself forward for contracts as a freelancer or perhaps putting yourself out there on social media and, and gathering an audience and gathering new clients that way. Those Absolutely. blocks, once you release them, well, you, you build your business. Things you start to happen. certainly do. Yeah. This is absolutely true. Mm. At 1,000%. Yeah. Um, because our blocks keep us, keep, keep us a bit closed. And once mm. they are released, psh, we are open and, and, yeah, we fly. Yeah. Oh, mm. fly. I love that. We fly. Mm. <laughs> we fly. My <laughs> freelancers fly. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. I feel really inspired. Um, and I hope listeners do as well, because I just think it's, it's something that could really work for them. And I think with all the things like we were saying at the beginning, you know, the social media and the things that, that might trigger us, you know, yeah, this could be something. So how can people tell us where they can find you? I presume the books on your website and everything, but everywhere you might yeah. like them to find you, if you'd like them to follow you on social, what are your handles? Tell us yeah, everywhere we can find out more. Of course. So the book's got its own website, nobodyisbroken.com. Um, 
so you can order there. It's available at all the all of the um, main online retailers. I think some of the unmain ones too. But there's so many. You just pop into Google. You can buy it from whichever one you you, you want to support the most. Um, and then on Instagram, I am Lucinda Gordon Lennox. So that's very easy to remember. And if you go to my link in bio, there are two separate links in there to loads of therapists who practice what I do. One of the links is just the UK and the other link is worldwide. Fantastic. That's great. Um, so there's masses of resources on there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Such a pleasure. a pleasure. I wish you a, a very happy Friday. Thank you. And you too. Thank you.